And Gad came that day to David and said unto him, Go up, rear an altar unto the Lord in the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. And David, according to the saying of Gad, went up as the Lord commanded. And Aruna looked and saw the king and his servants coming on toward him. And Aruna went out and bowed himself before the king and his face upon the ground. And Aruna said, Wherefore is the Lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor of thee, to build an altar unto the Lord, that the plague may be stayed from the people. And Aruna said unto David, Let my lord the king take and offer up what seemeth good unto him. Behold, here are the oxen and burnt sacrifice and threshing instruments and other instruments of the oxen for wood. And these things did Aruna as a king give unto the king. And Aruna said unto the king, The Lord thy God accept thee. And the king said unto Aruna, Nay, but I will surely buy it of thee at a price. Neither will I offer burnt offering unto the Lord thy God of that which doth cost me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for fifty shekels of silver. And David built an altar to the Lord and, the, and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings. So the Lord was entreated for the land and the plague was stayed from Israel. I feel in my spirit tonight that at least in me, God is ready for us to put the finishing work on our temple. It's time to put the finishing work on our temple. Amen. If you'll get behind me, I promise not to take too long, but I wonder if we could just pray that God would have his way tonight in this word. Lord, I thank you, Jesus. God, I pray that your will and your way would be done, Lord, in me. God, use me as a vessel, Lord, for your kingdom. God, I pray you'd have your way in our minds and in our hearts tonight, Lord. Let us see what you showed me, God. Let us hear, Lord, what you spoke to me, God, I pray. Lord, have your way in each and every one, we pray in Jesus' name tonight. God, have your way, Lord, in Jesus' name. Why don't you turn to your neighbor one more time and say, it's time to finish the temple. Amen. You may be seated. The portion of Scripture we read was about David. If you'll read just prior to that, you'll find that David counted the people, which was an ultimate sign of disobedience to God. When David realized what he had done, and there was even people, his own uh, servants and his own uh, men, of the, the captains of the army, that tried to stop him, and he said, no, this is what I want. And so when he finally realized that he had sinned against God, it said in 2 Samuel 24, he says it like this, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now I pray, O Lord, take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done foolishly. And so the Lord sent a prophet named Gad. And Gab, uh, Gad, with three horrible ways of punishment, came to David and let David choose his punishment. That's rough. I don't know about you, but if God's going to punish me, just do it. Don't, don't give me three options. You know they're not going to be like, you know, the game shows. You hope you don't get a whammy or something. You know, you just, you hope you get the right door. None of these were good options. And so the first option uh, that he had was uh, uh, to, to have the, the men come and chase him, an enemy come and chase him. Another option that he had was, uh, um, and I've lost my place already, famine. And the third option was a plague. And so your options are be chased by your enemies, have a plague, or famine. And plague and famine kind of fall in the same boat. And so there was David to choose. And so David chose 
that God himself should punish him. He didn't want to have the men come and chase him and be chased out of his town. And so he chose that God would come and have his way with David. And so in just three days, David chose a plague. That plague in turn killed 70,000 people. That's a big oops. I've made oopses in my lives, in my life, but I've never cost the lives of 70,000. Amen? That's a big oops. And so with those mistakes, David chooses God himself. He'd rather suffer the wrath of God than at the hand of others. All of this could have been avoided if David would have just trusted God. David, truly a man, the Bible says, after God's own heart, but he could not stop himself from sinning in some big ways. Anybody know what that's like a little bit? There's times, let me just talk for just a moment. I'll get back to this in a second. But I know in our lives, the, the, the Bible talks about you're going to have vices. There's going to be things that you feel like you can't get past. Things that you can't break. Some people say generational curses. You want to talk about that for a second? Here's what's wild. In the Bible, when we look at David, we see a curse where he goes and, and lusts after another woman, a, a married woman, and, and has a child with her and has murder and everything happens. And then you see after that, you'll see Solomon where he marries like 300 women and has 700 concubines. You see this thing just multiply, but nobody talks about Jesse and David. You see, everybody think David started this, but David said it like this. In my, uh, in my conception, I was, I was conceived in sin. You see, in marriage, there's no sin when you're born, but in conception, it, sin happens when there's no marriage. So David was a part of this curse that seemed to go on generation after generation. And so David had some big sins in his life. Some of us have some sins in our lives that we feel like people are staring. People are looking, and for whatever reason, we can't get past it. You'll let that sin just, just stifle your entire growth in God. David numbered the people and killed 70,000, and he was still called the man after God's own heart. I'm telling you tonight, church, it doesn't matter what you've done. God is still a God of repentance. God is still a God that will just honor and he'll allow the plague to stop in your life and he'll forgive your lands. That's the God that we serve. So in three days, this plague stops and the Bible says that the angel stops around Aruna's land. And this is where the text picks up where Dad, uh, Gad instructs David to go by the threshing floor and to sacrifice on it. Today, we know that land as a temple mount. It is the most contested 35 acres in the entire world. Man, I love to study on Israel. I love to just see it. There are signs there that the own Jewish people can't even go up because they're not clean because they still live under the law. There are signs that from their head priest that says Jews don't go here. You can't even go up here right now. That all started back when David bought the threshing floor. Now, he bought the land itself like a small little spot of this threshing floor for about 1500 bucks. That's not a lot. But then he bought all the surrounding area for about $600,000. You see, David knew that I need to buy this. I've got to, if I'm going to ask God to forgive me, it was at no expense. It's whatever it took, and he was going to find a place where he was going to make right with God. He had blood on his hands. He wasn't able to build it. Uh, and, and the truth is he bought all that land trying to find a place for the tabernacle of God or the temple to be built. But even David wasn't able to build it. God said, you can't build it. So David becomes the greatest building planner that has ever existed. 
This guy got everything. Pastors preached on it before. I won't take the time to talk about all the gold, all the silver, the wood, the, the deals he began to make to make sure that paths, everything was coming in. And so David commissions his son Solomon to build the temple. Tonight, honestly, I'm not talking about David, but I'm talking about Solomon. Solomon was 12 years old when he started. Young people realize that your youth and your age holds very little to do when you become accountable, and I've always felt that. You realize the word teenagers made up, right? Like dinosaurs, not in the Bible. God can use you at any age. Amen? Elder, you're not too old for God to use you. Young person, you're not too young for God to use you. There's no time limit with God. If you're still here, that means he still has purpose. That means it's up to us to find out the will that God has for his life. So here's Solomon becoming king at age 12. And he knew that as he commissioned Solomon, his biggest task as king was to build this temple. So Solomon gets to work. He begins negotiating and trading with neighbors and rulers, making paths for more wood or whatever he, he might have lacked to begin building the temple and all of his kingdom. All in all, the temple took seven years and his entire kingdom took 20. We're doing all right. Yeah, we're not going to be 20 in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. But I think we're coming along fine, don't you? Seven years to build the temple. So Solomon built it. He draped this thing in gold, silver, brass, the finest woods, the finest cloths. They estimated this temple to be worth 175 to $215 billion. And all we see now is 35 barren acres. It's unbelievable to me to think, it's, you know, it's no wonder in Zerubbabel when he began to build it that the Bible says that young men rejoiced while old men wept. They wept because they remember and then they saw what they had. Man, if we let go of what God has given us, do you realize that this is a heritage? This is our temple. This is us. And we think that's, and that kind of cracks me up too. I don't have that in my notes, but I began to think, what's a human worth? What's a, a body worth? And, and to think of how many uh, people that I, I consider to be saved or whatever, and we can count the constituents in our, our different uh, uh, groups and the UPC and the ALJC and all these different people. They say that the human body is worth $9 million each. So as much as we see the temple that was $215 billion, and we say, man, God lost the greatest thing ever. He's changed the temple. And he's purchased something that is so much more valuable. So it's this temple that I feel the Lord has truly given me word to draw from tonight. And you'll wonder, what is a temple now? Where does it dwell? Like I just said, 1 Corinthians 6 says it like this. What? Know ye not that your body is a temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, which ye are not of your own, for which he bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Tonight, it's about time to finish the temple. It is time to begin to finish the temple. It's us. We are the temple of God in this era of grace. So the big question becomes, what made Solomon's temple so special and unique? And then the other question that follows up, am I missing these unique features of my temple? I want to tell you about his temple. Imagine a temple, again, draped in gold. Expensive metals, materials. One of the main areas, uh, as you walked in, would have these two big brass pillars. And, and he had this brazen altar at the beginning. It was as big as a holy of holies. And then he, he added this thing called a molten sea 
I had to look it up. I'm like, I must have missed this reading the Bible. What is this molten sea? You know, they used to just have a little laver. Well, they multiplied that by 10, put them all around the place. But then he gets his sea and builds it. That, to me, is just cool. That's where they'd go and wash. It wasn't good enough to have a little laver, a little, a little sink. It's like, go take care of yourself. After you sacrifice, they'd go and they'd wash in this molten sea. Everything was multiplied. The candlesticks now times 10. The tables of showbread times 10. They'd have priest quarters wrapped around just an immaculate building. Everybody knew where the temple was. They say it was 180 feet tall. That's big. Our courthouse at the very top is 165 feet. And I'm sure that took a lot to get that in our modern ways of building. And he built yet another 15 feet to make this temple the biggest and the grandest around. It was just like the tabernacle. It was set up but only multiplied exponentially. The altars were massive. The, grand, the entry was grand. The height overwhelming. And at the center of it was truly just the Jews' existence, which was God. God would come and rest in this temple. But there was something very different about the pillars from the tabernacle to the temple. The tabernacle had five pillars. It represented the five roles God fills in our lives. We call it wonderful. Counselor, the mighty God, everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. But these two pillars are different. These are what I'll focus on tonight for just a little bit. Is that all right? I told you I'm more of a storyteller. We'll get there one way or another. But these two, these two pillars are what it comes down to. Solomon named these pillars Boaz and Jachin. These two pillars that stood at the entrance are over 35 feet tall. They're amazing when you look at the height, but truly when you begin to break down what's in these pillars and what makes these pillars for Solomon's temple so unique. They started off with a base that was five cubits long. It had 18 cubits of bronze pillar just stacked on top of it. In fact, the first eight feet tall was the base. Most people never look above the base. Because it's above your head. That's, I mean, that, that is massive. When you think of just walking into the grand temple and all you have are these two pillars that are unexplainable but have these eight-foot bases and then brass just stacked on top of it. The next 18 feet tall is brass. And then at the top, it had rows of pomegranates. It had chain work, then checker work. And finally, on top of the pillars were bowls that had lily work. I didn't realize until I began to study these pillars were uh, how much of the world has tried to define them. They tried to pervert these pillars into uh, masonism and uh, being a mason and, and, and to say that all oh, the, the dimensions and this, that, and the other. But God had a different meaning for these pillars. And it takes the word of God and, and, and to study it out to understand what these almost 30 to 35 feet of pillars consisted of. You see, the truth is bronze represented something in the Word of God. Bronze represents a reflection of God's judgment. One day we'll all be judged. In fact, the Bible talks in Revelations that there'll be a great white throne of judgment. I don't believe everybody's going to be at that because there's a point where he just raptures out. He draws out the elect. That's what the Bible talks about. Will we have to face it? I don't really know. Ultimately, it's a great white throne of judgment. If he pulled me out of the earth, I think I'm going to be okay going through the judgment. I just got to make sure he pulls me out of the earth. Amen? Am I wrong? You can, I'm telling you, it's right here. You just have your way, Pastor. I want to be submitted. Amen. But it truly takes the word of God and his corrections to make my value go up. 
Every week I need to hear it preached. Every day I need to be in his word. Every day I have to understand that the bronze that God created in my life is for me to see correction. In our lives, bronze has to be present. That's what used to be in the laver of waters. They would go and grab their looking glasses of copper and of bronze, and they made this laver of water because when you washed, you could look at the blood that was caused from your sin. You could look at what it took to be clean. So now this bronze was here cast on pillars which had to represent God's judgment in our lives. When you look at bronze in the Bible, that's what it meant. If you'll understand that in our lives today, if we'll let God judge us daily, if we'll let him correct us weekly, and monthly, and to stay in our lives. There doesn't have to be a big worried line at the end of everything saying, will I be cast into hell or off to heaven? But it takes that judgment of God. It reads like this uh, uh, in, in Psalms 119, Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against it. And Job said it like this, Behold, happy is the man from whom God correcteth. Therefore despise not thou the chastening of the Almighty, for he maketh sore and bindeth up. He woundeth and his hands make whole. I need God to check my life daily. Maybe that's just me, but I want God to have his way. I want to be corrected by him. I'd rather it be now than later. Yes, it hurts now. Yes, it's embarrassing now when God corrects you. There's nothing that's fun about that, but I'd rather God show who I am now so he has a chance to change me. His mercies, and that's why when, when we talk about being clay, pastor preached a message uh, uh, up in Addison about uh, being a vessel of honor and dishonor. It reminded me of tonight about being clay. The Bible talks about uh, that, you know, he'll, he'll have to mold you and make you. He'll have to sometimes break you down like the potter uh, on, on, the, on, the, on the potter's wheel, and he'll have to remake you sometimes. That was never meant to be fun, but it's necessary. It's necessary that God has the chance to change us. After the 18 feet of bronze started this detail work. If you've ever been out to our campus, you'll know there's some detail work. And sometimes it's up kind of high and it doesn't make sense. Not, not, I'm not talking about our campus. <laughs> I love the detail work we have up high, down low. It looks great. If you haven't been out there, go to it. It's amazing. But after they had this 18 feet of just what seemed to be nothingness, started these two rows of pomegranates. I believe that the next thing that God tries to show us in our lives, these pillars that we need to have in our lives, they represented eternal life and atonement as well as countless posterity, which is to say our future, our heritage. The truth being carried generation after generation. I really feel the next part of our lives, and young people hear me on this, is to understand that you've got to carry this gospel farther than just you. Parents, it has to be more than just your God that you serve. It has to be their God, and it has to be their children's God. It has to be something we get ownership of. It can't just be for me and myself and forget my family, but it has to be something I help drag them to. It's never fun. Never fun if you have to drag your child or, or a parent or a, a husband or a wife to church. Never fun. But my Lord, I've never heard somebody say that they hated the fact. They just said, yeah, they made me. But when you ask them years later, they'll remember the fact that, yeah, my parents made me. My, my, my husband and my wife, they made me. I'll never forget in Louisiana, 
There was this uh, husband and wife I got to meet, and we'd have Bible studies in their house every week when I was down there for a few months, and uh, he was a lawyer. They had money. I mean, it was a beautiful home, and, and uh, you walked in, and, and he was just, you could tell, he wasn't in church as long as her. Like, he was just a little funnier, maybe a little more raw, and she was real refined and real polite and just, I mean, just the sweetest couple, and they began to tell us about years ago that um, she was in church a lot longer. And so it came time to explain, well, how did you get into church? He go, I don't know what it was. I'd go, to, I'd go to bed, and, man, I'd just get this weird smell. I'd wake up. I'd just feel like, my Lord, I'm just, there's oil everywhere. Every time he'd leave the house, she'd about drench the house in oil praying for him. And his pillow, of all things, you know, he's going to sleep, waking up like, why am I so oily? No, everything's just a mess. It's because she understood I've got to have pomegranates in my life. I've got to have a heritage. I've got to have my family buy into this. I've got to make sure I'm spreading the word of God. In Acts 2, it reads like this. We all understand 2.38 said, Then Peter said unto them, Repent, be baptized for every one of you. Uh, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. You shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. But verse 39 is just as important. For the promise is unto you and to your children and all that are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with all the other words did he testify and exhort, saying, Save yourselves from this untoward generation. Pomegranates must exist in our life as pillars to God. We've got to let our children know this. We've still got to let our world know this. We can't just be a us for a no more church. Amen. It needs to be more about that. The pillars in our lives need to keep our children in mind in every decision. Do you realize they're watching you? They're learning from you. Everything. I will never forget, we, we were talking, I was, believe I was talking with my father. You know, when I'm up here, a lot of people say my mannerisms are just like his. I don't understand it. And then we begin to talk about Charlie and said she looks just like her Mimi and Sydney looks just like Aunt Donna and all this other stuff. And it's like whoever they're around, they're picking up how they walk, how they talk, mannerisms, the little moves and all that and the other. And I see him smile, but I feel just like him. You're going to be a product of your parents. That's why generational curses sometimes come. But let me tell you about generational blessings as well. You see, Jesse was the one that, you know how I mentioned David. It didn't seem like he was part of the family. And it said, uh, I, was, I was in sin, I was conceived. Well, when, when Jesse was there with, with uh, uh, Samuel and they were talking about, bring me all your sons. And he brought them all except David. He left David out, and so eventually it's like, this ain't all your sons. So they brought the one that nobody was supposed to know about, right? And so here comes David, and, and he becomes anointed. That was a blessing. That was something that happened. And so then when Solomon becomes king, you see the blessings multiply. Just like sin might, blessings multiply more and more. You see it last generation after generation. They stopped talking about the sin that David had generation after generation. But the blessings came all the way to Jesus. That bloodline carried through blessings in your family. When you're blessed of God, hold on to those blessings. Share them with your children. I'll never forget when I heard about uh, uh, checks that would come unexplained when we're trying to build a church when I was just a baby. I'll never uh, uh, forget those hearing about checks and, and money coming out of nowhere. And now I look in my life where I see checks come out of nowhere with medical bills and I see things being forgiven. I want to know God's still got my back. He's still got your back. Don't forget to let the pomegranates alive in your life. 
He'll bless your life. That's why you spend your time in your world. You spend every moment with him on your mind. You let your thoughts be brought into captivity. It matters that you spend that for God. I'll move along. I know I'm taking my time here. On top of that was these chains and these checker work, and then was this bowl with lily work. And they say at the very top was this lily work. This is maybe the point I want to draw to most tonight. This is the spot that, again, when you realize that most people weren't going to see. This is like putting something real fancy on a flat roof. Pointless. (laughs) Utter pointless. But you see these pillars had a point in every bit of them. When you looked at the lily work, you saw something truly, I believe, that was just for God. You see, in our lives, there needs to be something that, yes, they can see God's judgment in your life. Yes, they can see the heritage, and they can see what you're trying to do. And maybe they'll look up. Maybe they'll see some chain work and, and some checker work, but then they're not really sure what's on top. And so people might, that's not for them to see anyway. That's for you and God. You see, in our lives, there needs to be something that only God knows the detail. Only God knows how much time and effort was put into the top of your pillars. There needs to be a part of our life that says that up there, that's only for God to see. That's something that only God's going to know. That becomes my prayer closet. That becomes a place in my life where I've got to make something, a monument, a pillar, a landmark that only God understands. Matthew says it like this, But thou, when thou prayest, enter into a closet. And when thou hast shut the door, pray the Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. But when you pray, don't use vain repetitions as the heathens do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speakings, but be therefore like unto them, for your Father knoweth the things that ye have need for before ye ask them. It matters that you have a secret place. It said there, if you'll, if you'll catch it, let me go back. I, I, I breezed over it. But thou, when thou prayest, enter into a closet. When thou shalt shut the door, pray that thy father which is in secret, and thy father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. I need lily works on the top of my life. I need to have a prayer life that, that only God sees. Because if I'll keep that with him, then the blessings that seem unexplainable, it's explainable. Because all of a sudden, it's like, well, man, why are they so blessed? They look normal. You don't know their prayer closet. You don't know what's on top. You don't know the detail. You don't know the time. You don't know the, the fasting. You don't know the efforts. We've got to have that in our lives. Our children need to know that there's going to be a time where dad's not going to be there for an hour. And he's just in a back bedroom. He ain't sleeping. He's reaching God. Well, my dad wakes up early. Okay, fine. Why? He doesn't need to get ready. He doesn't care about the news. What's the deal? Maybe he's preparing lily works. I've got to have lily works in my lives. Solomon named these things. He called them Boaz and Jachin. Boaz, which means in him is strength, and Jachin, which means he shall establish. These pillars of life represent the strength only God can give. It's a foundation that won't sink. These are what should always be the pillars of our lives. It's the people, uh, it's the pillars of who you are that people see. Truly. They'll see these things. You understand, I heard Brother Mark Morgan talk about it like this. And he, and he began to read uh, the, in Genesis at the very beginning, a message I heard from him. I loved it. He said, and, and, and night and day were the first, mo- or the first day. And then he would say, you know, the water was on, and night and day were the first day. And then uh, the next thing would happen, the firmament and the separation, and, and night and day. Do you realize how we look at days? 
We call them day and night, and that was a day. But God meant them to be backwards. Night comes first, and then the day. I don't want to get too deep into his message. That's his thoughts, and I thank God for the revelation. Go watch it. (laughs) But ultimately, when the day begins to break, this temple faced east. And the first thing I believe the sun would begin to hit is the top of that pillar. And then the light would begin to shine down through the rest of it. You see, in the midst of your darkness, God will let the light hit the thing that that should be the top. The thing that only He should have. That's where the sun will hit first. So if you're going through the darkest, deepest night of your life and you're saying, Why God? Get me out of this. Pull me through it. Whatever it takes. Truthfully, you should be just praying. Just make sure that you're getting lily works ready because when the day breaks, that's what it'll hit first. That's what will come first in your life. That's what God wants in our lives. It's unbelievable to think that these pillars were made 35 feet tall. Everything about them was so precious and special. But at the top, at the top of the pillar is what I have to be complete. I need a lily work in my life. It needs to be our prayer that we carve out these details in our lives. Their names to be, need to be memorials in our life as the music comes. There's an old hymn that comes to mind. I don't know about you, I felt over the past three or four months that I truly have went through some very, very dark times. And most people think that darkness comes from the devil. Right? But God said night and day were the first day. God's the one that made it. In fact, even when the children of Israel said, we want to talk to God ourselves, why do we have to go through you? God said, okay, let them go and prepare themselves. So they fasted for a number of days, and, and then God came down in a dark cloud And they said it was screeching so bad that they all went back to their tents. And they're like, we're good. We're done. And Moses climbed through all the screeching, all the darkness, to see the brightest day. Darkness isn't always of the devil. Sometimes that's why testimonies have tests at the beginning. Everybody wants the money. Nobody wants that test. And so in darkness, I feel like in my life, God is trying to make me grow a pillar. I've got to have pillars. I've got to have things that, otherwise, what's my purpose? What's my value? How will I bring somebody through something I've never been through? doesn't mean I need to get lost in sin to understand it, but I've got to understand what trust is. I've got to understand what faith is and hope is. I need that stuff in my life. And that's going to take some moments of feeling hopeless to trust in him. It's going to take times of feeling like I'm not going to make it through. And there might be anxiety that's not necessarily of God, but things that I'll have to fight so he knows I trust him. I believe him. My faith is strong in him. And that all comes from a life built with pillars. The hymn that I believe came to mind for me was an old one that says, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly trust on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Verse 2 would say, When darkness seems to hide His face, I rest on His unchanging grace. 
In every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Verse 3 says, His oath, His covenant, His blood, support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, then is all my hope and stay. On Christ the solid rock I stand. I've got to have pillars in my life. I've got to have things that I know. That's why the Bible talked about, you know, all other ground is sinking sand. It's, it matters that my foundation's on the rock. It matters that everything I build up from him is on him. I don't have time in this life for things that are going to pull me away from him. I don't have time in this life for just fun that's questionable that's going to lead me away from God. If you'd stand with me. Driving back from Chicago, I realized as me and my wife were driving that you can't even look at the billboards. The sin is just so thick. I, I, my mind kind of went to some weird places just imagining how in the world you even reach three or five or seven million people in a city, a metroplex. And it's just amazing to see when you're in the suburbs, you're an hour away from the city, yet it's still Chicago. And you see, again, casinos, gentlemen's clubs, as they call them. And you'll see every bit of hopelessness and people trying to get off this drug and trying to get onto that one. And you'll see all of this life and say, man, what's the point? But if you'll just understand, and, and especially this time of year with fright nights and the haunted this and that and the other, I don't have time in my life for that stuff. Does it seem like fun? I don't know. Sin's fun for a season. That's biblical. There's nothing wrong with the thought that it might be fun, but don't go down a road of fun. Build your pillar. There were two times that God personally met with Solomon. Two times that God personally met with Solomon. He met with him because there was an unending sacrifice and worship that Solomon gave. The first time, the Bible says that a thousand rams were sacrificed, and God came down and said, what do you want? Blank check. Some of you are like, well, I could do that. I could sacrifice a thousand rams. Thousand rams cost up to about two hundred thousand dollars. How big's your sacrifice? The second time was at the conclusion of this building of the temple, and the pillars are stood, and everything's standing up. And the Bible says that there was one hundred twenty thousand sheep sacrificed, along with twenty-two thousand oxen. He knew what it meant to be excessive in his worship. He knew what it meant to get the attention of God. That only comes from a place of wisdom, which I know he had the most we've ever seen or will ever know. But in your lives, I know there's some wisdom tapping in. That just 120,000 sheep is $24 million. 22,000 oxen is another $33 million. When this man was trying to get God's attention, it didn't matter what it cost. It didn't matter what it took, what type of expenditure. See, I'm not talking about finances necessarily, but some of us have our pride or our reservedness. What's it cost? to get God's attention. What's it going to cost? Okay, maybe not in public, but privately, what's it going to cost us? What do we need to put away so that God would see we just want him to shine on us. We want him to be seen through us. I want to be blessed of God. Does anyone else want to be blessed of God? (laughs) 
I want to talk about one more thing and I'm done. Just close your eyes with me real quick. The Bible talks about this holy of holies. There was one day that was more important than any other in the year. It was called the Day of Atonement. This Day of Atonement was a place where uh, the, the, the high priest would go in and he would take the sacrifice of the lamb off the, the, the main altar and he'd take the blood of it and he'd sprinkle it on the mercy seat. There's one person, just one person, only one, that holy of holies was made to only fit one. The most important day of the year, the one day that you knew God would come down and take the sacrifice, everything was going to be rolled back a year. The most important of all days and only one person got to experience it a year. Just one. In your life, I'm trying to tell you tonight, as much as we want to bring everybody and experience everything together, sometimes the most important part of your life comes when it's just you in a place with God. It's just you reaching Him and Him consuming your sacrifice. Him consuming your worship. Him saying that I'll forgive, I'll bless, I'll push back. It was one man in the most important place watching God consume everything. So the question becomes, what's the holiest place on earth? That's where you'll find His presence. You'll hear His voice and you'll see His glory. For the only one that resides in the most holy place is that secret place. And so tonight I begin to ask you, have you made yourself a place where it's just you and God? Some of you have forgot what it's like to touch His throne. You see, when they would touch the hem of His garment, it was a... a, a, a much more deeper than we ever think about. The hymn meant a seat seat. It was this little insignia. It was a seal that they would place on them. And when that lady reached out with the issue of blood, she was touching a place of power. With us, we forgot what it's like to reach out for that hand of power with God. We've re we forgot to reach out for a place where God just, uh, it's everything we can do. It's all faith that we have to just ask for some virtue. So tonight, as I open up these altars, I wonder how many of us would come to a place and say, God, would you please just let me find a secret place? Would you take my offering? Would you take my worship? And in this place would just me and you, would you let it just begin to be consumed? Come on, parents, why don't we show our children what it means to find a place with God? Come on, husband, why don't we show our wife what it means Wise, why don't we just be our own people for a moment and understand there's some places that only God's going to take us. Hallelujah. Won't you find a place to pray tonight? Won't you find a place to touch His throne?